Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn to Romans chapter 1, page 939. One of the things we go over in the inquirer's class next week, I believe, is how the Bible is put together. You have the four Gospels, each with a different audience, Matthew to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Gentiles, John to all people. And you have the book of Acts, which is the second volume of the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke. And then we have the, uh, the letters of Paul, arranged according to length. And so Romans is the longest, and so it comes first. And we're in Romans chapter 1, just looking at two verses this morning, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Hear God's word. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. This past Wednesday was October 21st, 2015, which was labeled in our media as Back to the Future Day. In case you didn't notice, that was due to that being the date which was predicted 30 years ago in the original movie. And then in Back to the Future 2, Marty McFly travels to October the 21st, 2015 to save his children yet to be born. And those movies took the theory of time travel and humorously imagined what the present would be like if we could change the past. And I mention this because uh, whether we realize it or not, whether you realize it or not, your, your life, my life, uh, we are greatly impacted by some things which took place almost 500 years ago. It's a period referred back to now as the Protestant Reformation. It was a turning point in history, at least the history of Western civilization. And some of the ways we've been affected is our understanding of politics and government, of literature, of science, and of other ways I'm going to focus on in just a moment. So although that event officially began 484 years ago later this week on October the 31st. It truly affects how we live today. Now, if you've ever been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, uh, there are many reasons to be today. We can be intimidated when people criticize the Christian faith, especially because of its, its exclusivity, that Christ is the only way to God, because of the dependence on the supernatural, and how that squares with our daily understanding of science, which changes by the day. Our, but the most offensive, the most opposed view, according to Russell Moore in his book Onward, is our sexual ethic. The fact that Christianity teaches that heterosexual relationships in a committed marriage, uh, that sex is for that arena and that arena only, is just hated by the world. So if you've ever been a, tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, you're in good company, the Apostle Paul, because what we face is very similar to what he faced in the Roman world, uh, all of these very perspectives and more. And so he knew this temptation, and in fact, he, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said to them, that he originally came to them in much weakness and fear and with much 
trembling. He was scared to death when he took the gospel to Corinth. So then and now, whenever the gospel is preached, it arouses opposition, often contempt, sometimes ridicule. So how did the Apostle Paul overcome this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? He tells us. In verse 16, it's by remembering that that very same message, which some despise for its weakness and foolishness, is in fact the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How do we know this? How do we know it's the power of God? Only because we've experienced its saving power in our lives. Has God reconciled you to himself? Has God adopted you into his family? Has God put his spirit within you? Has he begun to transform you into the image of Christ? Has he introduced you into the new community, the church? Then how can we be ashamed of that? Also, the gospel is God's saving power, it says, for everyone who believes. This is not just for English-speaking people. This is not just for Jews in Paul's day. It was for everyone. We think 60%, maybe more, of the entire population of the Roman Empire, when the Apostle Paul preached, 60% were slaves. And he's saying this is for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That means the non-Jew. And so there's an open invitation to you, regardless of your background, regardless of your age, Regardless of your nationality, it's an open invitation. The gospel is for everyone. Verse 17 tells us the reason the gospel is God's saving power is that in it God's righteousness is revealed. Now I plan to say more about that in just a moment or a few minutes as I tell you about Martin Luther as we revisit some things about Martin Luther and how he's seen as the least the forefront of the Protestant Reformation. Now, some of you have read a lot about him. You've heard a lot about him. This will sound very basic to you. Others, this may be brand new. So let me tell you about this man, this man who was born to a miner's family, a poor family, on November 10, 1483. To put that in perspective, Martin Luther was nine years old when Columbus sailed for the New World. He was born... Uh, on that day in November, he was baptized the next day, given the name of the saint of that day, which was St. Martin. So we know him as Martin Luther or Martin Luther. His family was very poor. He had at least eight brothers and sisters in the family. He apparently remained very proud of the fact that he came from such humble origins. He said, I am a peasant son. My father, my grandfather, all my ancestors were genuine peasants, except he said it in German. And it seems that he had a very hard youth. Strict discipline was placed upon him in his family and at school. Someone wrote that one account he was whipped 15 times one morning in school with a rod. Very strict discipline. When he was 18 years old, his father had this dream, this goal for his eldest son to become a lawyer. And he wanted him to go to the university. And so his father somehow or another pulled together enough money and sent him to the University of Erfurt. And in 1502, he received his Bachelor of Arts degree. He continued there in school another three years until 1505 when he received his Master's of Arts degree, which is equivalent to a Ph.D. today. 
According to his father's wishes, he was on his way to becoming a lawyer. But God had other plans for Martin Luther. He and a friend were standing together one day. I guess there was some sort of storm when suddenly a bolt of lightning came out of heaven, struck his friend dead on the spot. And Martin began to think. You may think lightning doesn't do that. You, I was reading one day in a book about the Okefenokee Swamp. Lightning is the number one killer of people in the Okefenokee Swamps. Not water moccasins, not drowning or anything else. Two weeks later, he's caught in another violent storm. He's walking, he's in the open, and it got worse and worse. He was frightened out of his wits. He said later he threw himself to the ground, and he said, Help me! Help me, St. Anna! I will become a monk. And that was his call to the ministry, right there on the spot. Two weeks later, he entered the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt. He took his monastic vows. And he said he did this because of the terror that he felt within himself. The fear of God, the fear of death, the fear of God's judgment to come. And so the main thought he had as he entered the monastery was the saving of his soul. And according to the experts of his day, the best way to do that was to enter a place like a monastery, a cloister where you can be all alone. And in the monastery, his chief concern was to earn a place in heaven. So he set about to do that. He read the scriptures with passion, with enthusiasm. He read in particular the Ten Commandments. And as he read the Ten Commandments, he caught something of the reflection of the character of God, and he began to have a terrible sense of his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness and the awful gap which existed between him, a sinful human, and a holy God. And he felt this impossibility to be able to bridge that gap. He read in the New Testament. He read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And the more he read, he saw his own life so totally distant from the life and teachings of what he saw there. He was overwhelmed with the sense of his own sin sinfulness and of God's righteousness. He made pilgrimage to Rome, thinking that would help. He climbed on his hands and knees the spiral sanctor, the sacred steps. He recited the Lord's Prayer every time he went up one more step, but that didn't help. He came back home and he began to besiege and pester his father confessor. He used to, to go to him first once a week, which was normal for confession, but then he'd go once a day and then three, four, five, six times a day he would go. If he had the slightest sinful thought that entered his mind, it would burden his conscience and he would make his way to the father confessor and confess this seemingly little and trivial thing to him until his father confessor finally got fed up with the whole business and said to him, why don't you go away and commit a sin that's worth confessing? Went back to the scriptures, read more, still grew in his terror of what he read. And this is what he wrote about that season of his life. I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I'd have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. Sometimes he would fast, and he would go as much as three days without a crumb to eat thinking that somehow or another that might purify his soul. At other times he slept 
when he slept at night. In the cold in the winter, he would sleep with no covering on his body, hoping that somehow the bitter cold in the dead of winter would deaden his fleshly passions and somehow be reflected into his soul and would somehow purify him and get him right with God. While he was in the monastery and engaging in those vigils and prayers and fastings and readings and confessions, he began to read this chapter, Romans chapter 1. And he came to verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And when he came across that, what we would think would be suddenly an eye-opening experience, it just plunged him into more despair. Because he said, in the gospel, the good news, this gospel which apparently has the answer to human needs, what is revealed there? And it says what's revealed there is the righteousness of God. But he already knew something of the awesome and awful righteousness of God. And now as he looked at this, he said the gospel is bringing all of that to the forefront. And in this verse, putting it in capital letters. God is righteous. God is pure. God is holy. God is just. And he cannot look upon sin. And here I am, thought Martin Luther, sinful, depraved, corrupt, separated from God. And so he was plunged into even deeper horror. He later wrote, I was driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. If you come from a legalistic background, you can relate at least to an extent to that, that you grow to hate God because you feel you can never measure up. But then the truth of verse 17 began to dawn on his soul. And he began properly to understand what Paul was saying. And here's what it is. That this righteousness of God was not descriptive of God. That Paul's not using that to describe what God is like, that God is righteous, though he is, and Scripture teaches that. That's not what he means in this verse. What Paul is saying is that the righteousness which God provides us to take hold of, the righteousness from God, of God, belonging to God, that he makes available to you and to me. That God had provided the means whereby a person could get right with God. He had provided this means through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that by laying hold of that righteousness in order to be right with God now was not a matter of religious duty and discipline and good deeds. It was a matter of faith. That this righteousness earned by Christ is offered to you and me as a free gift through faith. And so what's necessary then and now is to receive this free gift of God's righteousness. He had provided in Christ. He wrote, Luther wrote, Night and day I struggled until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and the sheer mercy of God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to have been reborn to God through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and where before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me unexpectedly sweet. Isn't that a great sentence? Now it came to me, it came to be sweet what I'd hated before. And he writes, this passage of the Apostle Paul became to me a gate to heaven. 
So it was through his study of Scripture and the Holy Spirit opened his eyes that he came to understand the love of God. It's through that he came to understand Christ as his Savior and he trusted in him and it was through this that he came to have forgiveness of his sins and know how they are forgiven. Now that was happening internally in the heart and mind and soul of Martin Luther. But at the same time in God's providence, there were a lot of things happening externally in that part of the world. And things began to happen. And the main thing that sparked it was the sale of indulgences. An indulgence is where you're forgiven certain things if you paid so much money to the church. And it's the years 1516 to 1517, and the Pope Julius II wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, and a lot of money was needed for that project, very expensive undertaking. So in order to pay for this, the Pope issued a great number of indulgences to people paying money to the church. Even Roman Catholic historians look back at this as pretty much the low ebb in the life of the Roman church. And now there were four privileges to this indulgence. I'm sure you probably heard this, but just a brief reminder for those that haven't. If I was selling an indulgence, if I was a person promoting those, I would ask for your money and I would promise you four things as a result of you purchasing this indulgence. First, there would be full and free remission of all sins for the money you paid to me. Second, you would be given a letter which allowed you to choose your own father confessor. You know, you only want to say certain things to certain ones. Third, you would participate in the merits of the saints, those wonderful people who had lived before you. And the fourth thing, and this was what became most attractive, was that the giving of the money, by giving of the money, by purchasing this, you would be able to relieve suffering souls in purgatory. You know, the place where those would go, so they were taught, who had been who had died to be purged of their sins. And so this man, who apparently had incredible powers of speech and persuasion named John Tetzel, came into Luther's area in Germany. Big mistake. He's selling these indulgences, and he would preach to the people, and some of the quotations that are attributed to him are, the dead cry, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? And then he would assure his listeners that as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Give your money. Pay. Buy indulgences. Get people out of purgatory. And so for that reason, Martin Luther penned his 95 Theses. He wanted a discussion on this practice, the subject of indulgences. If you... If you are to read the 95 Theses, you would probably find them strange. There's nothing there about justification by faith. There's nothing about the, the solas of the Reformation on the insert you got from our denomination. None of that. It was all about this, this practice of the sale of indulgences and, and what Luther saw as just a terrible thing going on. Anyway, he wanted this discussion, so he posted the 95 points of his um, disagreements on a, basically it was a public bulletin board the castle door or the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and so he posted this and invited discussion on the same this was the beginning though of light coming into that city and then to the country of Germany and then to the continent of Europe and ultimately to us within two weeks of posting those 95 theses they were printed and distributed throughout Germany and within a month 
they were printed and distributed and flooded all of Europe, and that was made possible by the printing press of Johann Gutenberg. And so when Luther wrote those, he had no plans, he had no desire to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He was a strong Catholic. He loved and supported the Pope. He was just wanting some reforms. But, but three years later, by 1520, three years after he had tacked those statements to the, to the door, the break was complete. Evangelical, biblical evangelical theology was growing. It was breaking through into other parts of Europe. The doctrine of justification of, by faith alone was alive. The Holy Spirit was working in the lives of people. People were coming to understand this, and they were trusting in Christ as their Savior. And I really think it's next to impossible for you and me in our day to understand what it meant for Martin Luther to do what he did. And we have Bibles in our own languages. We have probably hardbacks, softbacks, various versions all around our houses. We read and we come to a church like this. Uh, some go to Christian schools. You hear the Bible read. You hear the word preached. We're free to witness we have no idea how difficult it was for Luther and others at that time. So he was dealing with the ultimate question, how can a person be made right with God? And if you grapple with that issue and you come to faith in Christ, then that message that Luther saw from Romans 1, 16 and 17 will be true for you. That the righteousness of God, that righteousness that Christ has earned by his perfect obedience is made available to you right now through faith. You are not here today by accident. Let me look at three of the main truths that came out of the Reformation. You've got five there, I think. But one was the authority of God's word alone, sola scriptura, a scripture alone. Um, Luther believed this is more than just a collection of human writings. It's God's word. It's true. It had authority. What Rome had taught was that it was the Bible plus tradition. It was the Bible plus something else. Only the priest were empowered and allowed to interpret correctly the meaning of the Bible. If you hear, hear R.C. Sproul's lectures on this, he thinks they were very well-intentioned. They knew if you released the Bible and just left it up to every individual to interpret it the way he or she wanted to, that could ultimately be, be chaos. And to a certain degree, it is. And, and uh, so the, the intention there was that it would be handled correctly, that it would be interpreted correctly, at least according to R.C. Sproul. But Luther translated the Greek New Testament into the German language, his own language. Because he wanted everybody, he said, the common people, quote, from the farm boy to the young girl who delivered the milk, he wanted them to feel the words of Scripture in their hearts. Let's never take this for granted. There are roughly 6,500 languages in the world today. And still, a thousand of those, at least a thousand, have no Bible, or for that matter, anything translated into writing. Now, some of those languages are only spoken in tribal groups that may not number any larger than are here this morning. And honestly, those are at the lower priority of Bible translation work because they have to start with those who speak the, the languages that are spoken by more people and work their way down to the smaller languages. Of course, the language spoken by most people on the planet is Mandarin. Mandarin Chinese, not English. But uh, there. So we, have, we take that for granted. He also said every believer is a priest. 
That does not mean we all have the freedom to interpret the Bible the way we want to, as some would use that phrase today. He knew that a human mediator between God and me is not necessary. Christ is the mediator. And so every believer, as Hebrews says, can approach the throne of God with confidence because of the work of Christ. We do not need two classes of Christians, priests and lay people. Then by grace alone. Luther had been taught what everyone had been taught at that time in that part of the world, that the way to be accepted by God is to do things, good things, pray, confess your sins, give, resist temptation, fast, discipline your body, worship God. He had tried to do all those things, but he only grew more and more frustrated when he realized there was nothing he could do to take away his problem of sin and guilt. You cannot do enough good things that will outweigh the bad things you've done. It's like having a backpack that may have 50 pounds in it. And every time you do a good deed, it's like adding more weight. Rather than taking the weight away, it just gets heavier and heavier. Now, the Roman Catholics at the time equally believed that a person was saved by Christ. But they taught that good works parallel faith. And the stress was laid on the good works. And so the reformers like Martin Luther and others said we are made acceptable to God only, solely, by the work of Christ. And then we do good works, not as a condition of justification, not as a condition to be made right with God, but as a product and evidence of salvation. Now look, if you will, at the little diagram there, that uh, the insert... And on the back, there's two pictures that came from the book, Ten Great Ideas from Church History. And this is, and I'm coming to the end, and this is a good summary, uh, I thought, in the best economy of words to tell you what the difference was and how we're made right with God. Now, the the top drawing was taught in the medieval church. And so this is what Luther heard growing up that God created every person and that within every person is, quote, a spark of God within him or her. And God sends Jesus to die on the cross. And that gets us started on our way, on our journey to God. So if you do your very best, represented by the steps going up on the left, if you do your very best, the teaching went, God will fan the spark of divinity within you and you will become fuller each day with holiness and love. And so through God's grace and your good works, you can climb the staircase of religious and moral achievement to the point where God, for lack of a better way to put it, God will be so impressed with your performance that he will declare you righteous and reward us with the gift of eternal life in heaven. So you climb those steps. Now, look at number two, the the diagram below. What Luther came to understand that the Bible teaches is that God's love is shown to us in that Christ has already climbed the staircase of religious achievement for us. And then he meets us at our point of sin and anger and defeat, and he took our place. So God gives his saving love. If you don't hear anything else today, listen to this one sentence. God gives his saving love 
at the bottom of the climb to crippled pilgrims, not at the top of the stairs to spiritual achievers. God gives his saving love at the bottom of the climb to crippled pilgrims, not at the top of the stairs to spiritual achievers. And so the sinner, see, at the bottom of the staircase, there in that that drawing, needs only to believe in order to be delivered. Because upon believing, you are given the righteousness of Christ. For students and younger students, you have an F on the test, and it's as though the teacher says here, you can have an A. The A was earned by another student. And what Christ has done is earned God's righteousness. He kept the law that our ancient forefather, Adam, never could do. And so his righteousness is given to us. Now, now we do the good works we sh- as we should, but we do it because of God's grace and our gratitude for what he has done for us. Now probably, and maybe you've never even voiced it, In a normal crowd this size, you've grown up in a Protestant church, maybe in this church, and your thinking is like that top diagram. Deep down, you really think, you sit here week after week or whenever you come and you hear about God's grace and the free offer of salvation, and it could be, it could be that you're thinking, I've got to kind of add, I've got to kind of add to what Christ did. And it's, it may be almost like it's subconscious. You need to make sure that you're trusting in Christ alone and do good deeds, but, but out of gratitude. Well, let me wrap it up with this. I was speaking to a group of students last fall at Covenant Academy, and I, I closed a, a long chapel with, what would Martin Luther say to you and me today? My guess is, and it's strictly my guess, tell us read your Bible you don't have to worry about the work of translation like he was dealing with pray daily and trust in the gospel that it it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek let's pray together Father there's something inside of us that wants to uh, climb a staircase maybe it's pride maybe it's Maybe it's that we think we can pay for our own sins by doing good. We pray that we would, uh, that you'd show us clearly our hearts today of where our trust is and that our trust might be in Christ and him only and that we would experience the transformation, the transforming power of the gospel each day and walk as your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.